welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. So is the man on the other end of the line. Last week, he was still fighting Phil Jackson. This week, he's defeated Phil Jackson. It's my colleague, Jason Concepcion, single-handedly brought down the triangle. It was the city. It was all of us (laughs) together. Yeah. It wasn't any one person. Popular uprising. Right. (laughs) So we have a busy show today. Later in the episode, we're getting a hand from one of our colleagues at The Ringer, Kate Nibs, who's a a big Crash Bandicoot fan. We are not. It's just a a hole in our video game experience. So she's going to come on and talk about the new Insane Trilogy remaster and her memories of the original Crash Bandicoot. And in just a second, we're getting another helping hand from another of our colleagues, Rob Harvilla from The Ringer, who's going to come on to join us in talking to Corey Davis, a developer at Psyonix who works on Rocket League. So that'll be the bulk of the episode. Very quickly, I know that you said some time ago, I think on this podcast, that the Nintendo re-releases of classic systems is a yes, scam, but a that scam. you were in anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so, I am. So we've got SNES Classic coming later this year. 21 games to choose from, $80 if you can buy one, which you probably won't be able to. I assume that you are even more in than with the NES Classic. The selection of games is is pretty impressive. Listen, I know I could get an emulator and then buy a controller online somewhere, but <laughs> yes, I want I I want this thing. I'm ash- I'm actually ashamed to admit that I want this thing, and I understand that it's a scam. I think we all understand at this point that it's a scam. Nintendo's most ardent fans understand that it's a scam. Mm-hmm. But I want I want this thing. I want it. Yeah, I kind of want it too. I didn't yeah. really want an NES Classic, but I I kind of want. To- this one just the leap from nes to snes oh, is God, huge in yeah. terms of not looking and feeling dated in 2017 so i know that there are games that people wish were in this package that are not whether it's chrono trigger or chrono turtles trigger. in time or or i don't know what else mother 2 or lots of other great games that could have been included but it looks like a pretty strong lineup so i assume that you will have to line up days early and and tear hair out and draw blood in order to actually get one of these at retail or at all. But it's a popular strategy. Obviously, I hope that we can stop with these one-offs that no one can actually get their hands on and just release all this stuff for the Switch. Just make it all accessible. That is like the one thing that the Switch needs to be a really classic system, I think, at this point, since the, the hardware is good, the software, yep. the new software is pretty successful so far. If we could somehow get access to a lot of the Nintendo library that we could play at our leisure, that would be a big step. So I'm not really holding my breath, but that'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so... All right, so let us move on to the guest segment. Let's talk some Rocket League. So a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking to Eric Van Allen from Compete and Rocket League came up and he was very enthusiastic about Rocket League. We were very enthusiastic about Rocket League. And so it seemed like something that we should devote more time from. And that's what we're going to do right now. So first off, we are joined by our colleague from The Ringer, Rob Harvilla, who covers music and culture and occasionally the Cleveland Indians and <laughs> is also a Rocket League enthusiast. Hey, Rob. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. Great to have you. And we are also joined by Corey Davis, who is the design director at Psionic Studios on Rocket League. Hey, Corey. Hey, how's it going? Great. So tell us about your history with Rocket League and with Psionic. When did you join the company? How did you get where you are? Oh, sure. So uh, when I was a junior in college at UNC, I emailed my current boss, Dave, looking for an internship. And he got back to me nine months later. (laughs) So a really quick turnaround time. Uh, And I ended up working for him. I was a programmer uh, for him for about five years. And then I moved over into game design shortly after that. 
mm-hmm. I've been doing uh, game design and design direction for about uh, five or six years now. Okay, so you were there in the supersonic, acrobatic, rocket-powered Absolutely. battle cars days. I was part of that very misguided decision to name the game. <laughs> right. So that's what I'm curious about, because I'm sure that a lot of Rocket League players might not even know that it's a sequel mm-hmm. or a spiritual sequel of sorts, and it was uh, a similar sort of game, rocket-powered battle cars, but obviously didn't break through the way that Rocket League has, and I wonder why you think that is. Does it have more to do with the world being ready for Rocket League or the Rocket League gameplay being ready for the world? What were some of the the tweaks that you all made going from the first game to the second that you think helped with that breakthrough? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both, actually. Um, We always thought when the first game came out that it would be successful for the same reasons Rocket League ended up being, right? It's very watchable. It's very accessible. It's fun from when you first pick it up until a thousand hours into it. And it has a lot of parallels to real sports, which we thought was sort of a missing element in games. You know, you can go play FIFA, but that's it's not really like playing soccer, right? Like it's managing a soccer team in some sense. So, you know, that's sort of like the market is now more ready for that kind of game than maybe it was in 2008 when indies weren't as big and it was harder to find games that were new and different like that. But uh, on the other hand, we made a lot of changes, right? Rocket League was sort of the game we always wanted supersonic to be has dedicated servers so it's a lot smoother online experience and we just had almost 10 more years of experience making video games so we were a lot better at polish and making it really Mm. easy to pick up and play sanded off all the rough edges if you go back and play supersonic now it feels kind of bad and (laughs) Uh at the time it didn't feel bad to us right but in retrospect with all this years you know all the all these other games we've worked on there's just sort of an intangible like feel for you know how to make the game feel good and how to get it there and I think that was the difference. Could you talk about a little about um, just the phenomenal success of Rocket League? It's There's very few games that I can think of that have blown up in the way that Rocket League has, almost like in a, in a total word-of-mouth way. I mean, it seems as if it's kind of altered the trajectory of, of your company as well. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think we had any idea until maybe right before the game came out that it was going to be anything big. Because, I mean, the first one was sort of a niche game. Right. And I think right before release, some Twitch streamers got really interested. And that's when we started seeing a lot of social media coverage and stuff. And that's when we got pretty excited. But it's kind of hard to fathom. I mean, like any indie developer, we have a lot of friends that have been on the other end of that, right? Like you make a really great game and for whatever reason, it just doesn't get traction or get picked up by media or whatever else. And Honestly, we just feel really lucky. Um, We think we sort of hit the jackpot of when we came out, uh, it being a streaming-friendly game. There's just a lot of things that went into the game blowing up the way it did that would be really hard for even us to replicate a second time. I think what's impressive for me is I'm I'm a very casual and a very terrible gamer, but I was I, I, I start playing it and and in five minutes I've picked up enough to where I can play online with other like terrible gamers yeah. and enjoy myself. But it scales all the way up to like professionals like actual mm-hmm. skilled professional play and like that that sort of cliche of like a minute to learn a lifetime to master like i imagine as a game designer that is actually really hard to do to make a game that scales from the terrible players to like the brilliant players it's really tough but on the same side i would say it's also a little bit of luck like go i would say even a few months before the game came out we were terrified that it was way too hard And we didn't have a very good strategy for like a lot of games would do things like put you in a special game mode for your first 10 levels where everything's easy and you get magnetized to the ball and they would try to like shield you from that skill curve. Right. And we didn't really have the time or the resources to do that. And we weren't sure we wanted to. And what surprised us a little bit was I I think we were sort of benefited from the PlayStation Plus promotion where the game was free for the first month. And Mm -hmm. it was such a low barrier to entry that everyone played with their friends and everyone had fun being terrible together. (laughs) And that, we think, is sort of what got people over the gap from, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, to I kind of have a little bit of control. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. But that wasn't entirely intentional. That was kind of luck on our side. But the other side is just when you make a physics-based game, 
it's easy for any like any human really to pick it up and enjoy some aspect of it. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because along the lines of what Rob is saying, it really does have this intuitive feel where you pick it up and it just feels like controlling yeah. a rocket-powered soccer car would feel like. Not that any of us knows <laughs> what that would feel like, but it feels like <laughs> what it sounds like that should feel like. And that's probably a combination of all kinds of factors that are incredibly complicated that I am not even aware that I am noticing. Or is it as simple as, you know, in some games, it'll just like, it'll feel too floaty in certain ways, or it will feel like it takes too much precision. And how difficult is it to find that balance? And how many sort of sliders are you tweaking to find that perfect <laughs> mix to probably simplify it way more than it actually is? I mean, there's a lot. I would say Rocket League benefited much like, you know, we have friends at Blizzard, right? And everyone knows how good Blizzard games are. And we've talked to them and they have some of the same secrets. It's just you spend years iterating and fine tuning on this stuff. Like we knew what Rocket League was from the start, which is a really rare benefit in the games industry. It's not often that you know day one what your game is and what your end goal is. And so that gave us the benefit of like almost two years of just fine tuning. Mm. Um, I would go like sometimes we would play on a Friday and I would take the game home over the weekend and just tinker with like how hard do you hit the ball at what speed mm. uh how powerful is your jump etc how does the camera react and honestly it's hard to point to any one thing right it's just the accumulation of that many hours of just tweaking and tweaking and tweaking until it feels perfect yeah i was gonna ask if there was like a moment when you felt <laughs> that it all come together but it sounds like maybe not just because it was so iterative but when you play it for the first time and you score a goal and you feel that rush and you see the mm -hmm. car exploding away from the goal <laughs> and it's you know instant hooked for life basically and yeah. so i i wonder if you ever had that nirvana epiphany moment on the development side it's hard to point to one also because, you know, going back to Supersonic, we played the hell out of that game internally. There were, you know, yeah. it wouldn't work now for us because we're like a real company now. But back in the day, I, we had a tradition where we would play five matches of 5v5, which we don't even have in Rocket League. But basically all 10 of us would play for like an hour at the end of the day every day and we never got sick of it. And I think that's what gave us the confidence to mm. make the first game and to then make a sequel is, you know, we love this thing. And we knew there was something there. It was just a matter of communicating it to consumers and getting people to get in and understand what we love so much about it. So that was, I, I guess that's the moment, right? It's when you want to stay late after work and play the thing that you've made. <laughs> I think the, the thing that I really appreciate about um, Rocket League is how purely a video game it is. I mean, it's Rocket cars <laughs> yeah. playing soccer. It's like almost uh, non sequiturs, really. Can you talk about how, how much of super acrobatic the feel of that game made it into Rocket League. We, did, was there any carryover where did you just think, oh, we, we've got to scrap this whole thing and, and just um, take the conceit and try again? Well, we scrapped it for different reasons, actually. And if you're interested, there's like a whole talk on YouTube from uh, when I was at the Game Developers Conference about sort of that kind of history. But in brief, we thought we needed to go more realistic. We had pitched the idea to a few game companies and... The first game was like very colorful and everyone thought they were RC cars and like sort of silly. And we thought, you know, maybe what this needs is like the ESPN treatment. Like it needs to be badass and have cool intro music and the cars are real scale. So we actually spent a bunch of time before we started on Rocket League, as you know it today, going down sort of a failed direction of like realistic dune buggy looking cars with rock music behind them. And like, it looks absurd when you look at it now. We sort of, de we threw out everything. And it really only, the project really only came together when we doubled back and said, screw it, let's just go with what was working in the first game and improve from there rather than try to reinvent the wheel. Well, And what was the first inkling that, holy shit, people love this game? Actually, it was before Rocket League. It was that we had a core community of players that stuck with the first game from when it came out in 2008 all the way up until Rocket League released. Yeah, which Some is of whom incre have... that's incredible. All right, and even for a multiplayer game, that's pretty unusual. So we knew that there was something there that was special with players, even if it was kind of a niche game. And what's really cool is we've seen these players grow up and go on to become pros in our esports scene, which has been awesome to watch. I, there's kids that I remember posting under aliases on our forums in 2009 when they were like eight years old. And now they're flying to Europe and winning mega tournaments, which is the coolest thing. 
did you know at the time that you were building what might be like the perfect esports gateway no, drug? I mean, absolutely I'm not. <laughs> you talked a little about how it's it's just a fun game to watch. Like you don't you don't have to have played it or you don't have to be any good at it to sort of understand the action and what makes a good player and a bad player. And just it's it's immediately entertaining and accessible to people who have never even dealt with esports before and who would find a lot of the popular esports games like pretty inscrutable like you you had no idea at the onset that that, that would be part of the appeal that's sort of just came up naturally too honestly no we just try to make a good game right and there's been a lot of posts after the fact sort of analysis of oh that's probably why it's so accessible is this and this and this but we, we never set out to make an eSport, right? A lot of people have been talking about this is it's really hard to start from scratch and say, we're going to make an eSport. It's a lot easier to say, we're going to make a really good game. And then if the community is interested in it being an eSport, we'll give them all the tools to make that possible. But we're mm-hmm. definitely, we're not a company that sets that kind of goal, right? We, we don't say we're going to make the next eSport. We just try to figure out what's the next game we want to make. And that, that was exactly how Rocket League and the game before it came into existence. And frankly, when we made the first game, eSports weren't a thing. Like League of Legends hadn't come out. Yeah. There wasn't really much going on besides sort of like, you know, I, I had been to a couple Smash Brothers tournaments around the Raleigh Chapel Hill area, but there wasn't anything on TV and there's no such thing as Twitch at the time. So we definitely weren't thinking in that direction. But I think, you know, our CEO, Dave, would tell you that's why he always thought the game would succeed is the direct understanding of, you know, when you do a cool aerial, it's cool to everybody. It's not just cool to fans of the game. Right. And how many, or how did you decide how many players to to allow at one time? Mm-hmm. How big to make the teams? Was there a, a point where it felt like the field was too crowded? Yeah, so um, we did ship with four v four, but it's sort of just offered as a uh, more casual, fun mm-hmm. mode. And we we've played even up to five v five and six v six. Ultimately, it comes down to we could make the field any size we wanted. But because of the, you know, sort of ball sports nature of the game, everyone will converge at some point and it just becomes impossible to do anything interesting once you get above 4v4, for example. Once you once you drop, you know, 12, 15 people into a lobby, it's just a mess around the ball. You can't do anything interesting. You can't get a shot off. There's always a goalie or two goalies or three goalies. So it wasn't really theoretical so much as just this is what worked in our internal playtesting. This is what didn't. Mm-hmm. We were talking a bit about the scale and and Rob was saying, you know, this has to work at so many different levels of sophistication Mm -hmm. of the player. And that's something we talk about when we when we discuss some more maybe complex esport like a MOBA or something. And you have these very advanced tactics and strategies and there's so much to learn. And this is soccer. And of course, soccer itself is played by people who are great at soccer and terrible at soccer. And it's fun for both. Both of them, and I assume the same is largely true of Rocket League. Or are there issues when it comes to balancing the game or making it fun for players of different skill? We've mostly run into that with the alternate modes we released, not with the core sort of competitive mode. Uh-huh. In some ways, it's more similar to hockey than soccer, which people have brought up before, in that it's constant motion and sort of mm. line changes in a sense with player rotation. Mm-hmm. But because it's just so ruleless, you know, there's there's really no thought that goes into hit the ball towards the goal. It scales <laughs> really well naturally, right? I mean, tactics improve as you get better, but there's nothing stopping a team of new players from accomplishing the same goal as a team of veterans. It's just how they go about it. So that's worked out pretty naturally for us. Uh, it's been more with when like an example is we did a basketball mode as sort of a fun little right. offshoot. Mm-hmm. And that one was really tricky to balance because to make anything like basketball, you need a hoop that's raised off of the floor. And that works really well once you're good enough to aim above the rim, essentially. But yeah. for everyone below that skill level, it's uh, quite a challenge. And so we did certain things to make it accessible, but ultimately just had to say, this is kind of a mode for more advanced players. We're talking about esports and Rocket League's um, ascendance into really one of the most vital current esports has been a magnificent and really fun surprise. Uh, I was reading recently that there's been a partnership announced with the X Games. You guys are going to be an event in the X Games. You could talk uh, about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we're really excited to work with both the X Games and NBC. We think Rocket League is a great fit for all of their brands and being like an accessible thing that you can turn on and watch on your TV or online. We're still sort of announcing details about both mm-hmm. events. 
in terms of like how you can sign up and qualify and plan them. But so far it's just been, you know, it's been a really good partnership on both sides because they kind of get it right. Like they're looking for new things that people want to watch. And there's a lot of crossover, which I think you guys are alluding to between why you might watch something at the X Games and why you might like watching Rocket League. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of the same concepts and things that are exciting. So we think it's a pretty natural fit. Yeah, I think the thing I find fascinating about this particular pairing is um, the broadcast language of television merging with mm -hmm. the, the kind of like nascent broadcast language of esports, in particular Rocket League. Is there anything, I mean, obviously nothing has happened yet, but is there anything that you're looking to take from the broadcast language of, of mm. regular sports that you think would apply to esports, for instance, you know, I think one of the, the most interesting thing about uh, watching any eSport broadcast is how they deal with presenting the players and the game, at, whether that be at yeah. the same time, or you cut away. Have you had any discussions internally about that, thought about it at all? Yeah, so I'm personally really uh, interested and excited by this kind of stuff, but it's something we talk about all the time. Um, and the most relevant part for us is figuring out how our camera should work. Right. We have certain versions that have been in the game we're still improving. And the real challenge is that Traditional sports media is typically a fixed camera angle high above the field, right? If you think about uh, American football or hockey or anything, um, it's a fairly static camera angle. And what we found when we went into testing broadcast cameras is that when you cut to that view, you lose a lot of what makes Rocket League different and exciting. Part of what's so engaging about watching it, especially when you watch it on Twitch, is that you're seeing it from the player's perspective. Yeah. So you get that same sense of speed and excitement and aerial play. And as soon as you cut out to a traditional sports camera, all that vanishes. So we've had to really sort of dig in on what is a what does a broadcast camera mean for our game versus how you would consume something like soccer. And we've got some cool stuff in our back pocket. We're trying some different things, but we kind of feel like the best way to view it is actually from the player perspective and just having a really smart either human director or AI director that can decide who has the best view of the shot at any given time and cutting to that. But We'd look a lot of broadcasts for rules like uh, don't cut the camera in this direction, right. don't ever jump in this way. There's a lot of established stuff that we're able to take and use to make it more accessible to people that are used to watching sports. But yeah, it's, it's a real challenge too, because it's just, you know, it is kind of a different thing, even as similar as it is. I might be showing my age with this, but this the phenomenon of how big it's gotten and how accessible it is, even to mm -hmm. not hardcore gamers, it reminds me of Wii Sports. <laughs> just the way that, that people, sure. that specific game that, you know, it's the game that theoretically your grandmother can play too. And that might not <laughs> exactly apply to Rocket League, but as you're tweaking the game and as you're sort of shaping the culture around it, as it gets to be this big thing, does your strategy have to change when you know that now you're speaking to a much broader swath of player that you're not necessarily dealing only with the sort of hardcore gamers that you were targeting before? Absolutely. I mean, one caveat, I guess, is we've always been targeting, you know, we're E for everyone. Uh, we've always been targeting like a much broader audience. We really like being a game that uh, parents can play with their kids. You know, you might not want to load up a shooter necessarily with your five-year-old, but you might want to play Rocket League or Mario Kart with them, right? And that's awesome. We love that. So we've always sort of marketed towards a much broader age range than you might with uh, a traditional eSport. Mm-hmm. But the Wii Sports comparison is hilarious. If you have a grandma that can play Rocket League, we'd love to meet her. <laughs> That'd be really impressive. Yeah, it does seem like you know every week there's some new announcement about an esports mm -hmm. breakthrough. Last week it was NBC Sports and the potential for a, a tournament there and maybe on cable. And then, as Jason mentioned, the X Games announcement broadcast on ESPN3. And I know you're not so much involved on the marketing or or the financial end of things but from what you've heard can you tell us anything about the ways in which the game's presentation and premise make it easier to pitch big networks like that or sort of legacy media entities on an esport because everyone wants to get into esports in some way it's a, a trendy thing for companies to invest in but i would assume that just the fact that you could show someone rocket league and it's immediately evident what is going on here it's fairly analogous to traditional sports it's clearly exciting it is not anyone shooting anyone else in the face so i assume that all of that kind of makes the the path a lot easier 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's not only just us going to them, right? Like we're actually being approached by a lot of these companies because they want to get into esports, and we're one of the ones that they think could fit their brand and their network and all that stuff. But a lot of it, I think, is just because it's so close to soccer. There's it's easier for them to see how it fits into a broadcast, right? Um, I mm -hmm. think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge for a traditional media company to look at a MOBA and see like, how do we, to your point earlier about like, how do you translate broadcast language into esports? It's a, it's a much bigger challenge, even though we have our own challenges, it's a much bigger challenge to translate a 50 yeah. minute MOBA match into a normal broadcast. Right. Yeah. And so I think there's just a desire there. They, you know, these are media companies. They want to, be showing what's interesting for people to watch and they look at rocket league and like we do and they think this is an accessible cool thing that people want to watch right now so let's see how we can partner with them and of course the more platforms it's available on the more accessible it is mm -hmm. to more players and so at e3 it was announced that there would be cross-platform play between xbox one and switch God bless you. switch version is coming yes and <laughs> of course it seems as if sony is still dragging its feet on ps4 cross-platform play hopefully that will happen at some point can you Tell us about the technical challenges. I, I know a lot of the challenges are just with rights and publishers and, and networks agreeing to to play well with each other. But on your end of things from the development side, what goes into making these different versions of the game interact seamlessly? Got it. So it's actually easier than you might think. Uh, a lot of the work has been done because uh, when we got Microsoft pulled into crossplay, we had a bunch of, you know, they're very protective of their users, which is great. And we had a bunch of sort of requirements to hit to get them to sign off on it. So we've done most of that, but a lot of it is just privacy stuff, right? Like don't let players from other platforms say stuff to our players, because which makes sense, right? Like if you say something offensive to me, I can't report you if you don't even exist on my platform of choice. Mm. So we had to do a bunch of sort of initial legwork of what are the ground rules for how you interact with someone from a different console? But beyond that, like once you're connected to our servers, it's pretty agnostic. It doesn't matter if you're playing from a Switch or a PlayStation or any other device that we would, you know, if we port it to your toaster or Clay Thompson's toaster from the Warriors Whoa! finals or whatever it was. <laughs> um, if we port it to anything else, right? Once you're on our servers, it's kind of the same data. So. A lot of it is just political. It's we don't want our users touching their users. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we get it. It's just, you know, it, it, we think it'd be a lot better for our players and all players if it was a lot more open. This is probably a uh, an issue at higher levels of play, but is there going to be, you think, any kind of edge provided by, mm -hmm. let's say, a Switch controller versus an Xbox controller? Or, right. you know, is, is that anything you've given a uh, any thought to? Yeah. So it's already been tested, right? Because the first cross-play we did was PlayStation 4 to Steam. Mm. And the biggest advantage you can have is playing on a gaming desktop at 144 frames per That's second. True. It's more responsive. Mm. It's faster, et cetera. All, all of our pro players play on PC at this point. And so that's already sort of been battle-tested for the last year and a half, two years. And in practice, what happens is we have a pretty smart skill rating system, and it just sorts you out, right? Like if you can't do the same things on a console as you can on your PC or vice versa, then that will affect how we matchmake you. And it'll just, you know, you'll play against other people doing the same kind of things you can do. It's not quite like a, like a shooter either, where a mouse gives you much better right. aiming control than a controller, right? Everyone's playing the same steering controls. So we're pretty fortunate in that sense that uh, one platform doesn't give a direct advantage, just sort of, you know, side ones like the frame rate benefit on a PC. I imagine you've been to a lot of, you know, in real life tournaments and meetups and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. like met some of the hardcore players, like your biggest fans, basically, mm -hmm. you know, I just I've been really interested just following them on Twitter and Twitch and stuff like this. Has <laughs> the culture, what has surprised you about the culture that's sort of been built up around the game? Did the people who seem most into it, are those the people who you thought would be most into it? Is there anything that surprises you about sort of this huge constituency that you've got now? Uh, I wouldn't say we're surprised by the people that have been into it. I mean, it's a lot of the same folks that were into our first game, right? It's people that enjoy fast physics-based multiplayer games. But I think maybe one thing that surprised us a lot was how much we heard from other developers in the industry who all have like lunchtime Rocket League competitions, <laughs> uh, which was really cool to hear. Just like, you know, we go to a conference and there's people there from other studios and they're all saying how much they love to play Rocket League in their spare time, which, you know, for us is a really good validation. But on the player side, 
I can't think of too many surprises. I mean, uh, it's funny to see. I think it's a wake up call as a developer when you go to your games tournament and the popular people there are not you, the developer, <laughs> but the 17 year olds playing your game. <laughs> Which, you know, it's it's a good reminder, but that was a little bit of a surprise for us the first time. I think it's just how popular some of our players have become on Twitch and YouTube. Are the pros playing the game the way you thought they would play the game? I mean, no. Is, is no. It, okay, like, <laughs> how is it different? Like, it, it gets hard for me to follow the strategies, and that's a pretty deep rabbit hole, but it's been interesting yeah. to talk about the philosophies that people have, and how did that differ from what you'd imagine? Um, so the main thing I can say is that we were never... You know, we never had enough hours in the day to get as good as they have gotten. And we've sort of caught up over time. But a, a good example that we never anticipated was all of the wall play. And what I mean by that is you can drive up on the walls. You know, you have somewhat sticky wheels. And a lot of the game has turned into players anticipating by going up on the wall early, leaping off of it to give themselves an initial sort of uh, altitude and then doing things from there. And that's something we just never even thought. It, it was so mechanically complex to us when we released the game that we didn't even think about the implications of that. But players quickly figured out how advantageous it was because it gives you essentially strong position on the field without having to expend any of your boost resource. And that's, that's the kind of thing that it's like it's become a big part of the game, but it just wasn't something we entirely planned for. And I think you see that kind of thing in a lot of successful Esports. I don't know if you guys have ever watched a Smash Brothers tournament, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. but I think there's some parallels there, but also in just how emergent that game is as a sport, right? It was released, I think, 15 years ago, maybe more, and players are still discovering new techniques within the physics engine and how the characters behave. And I would imagine that 99% of what they're doing was never witnessed in a playtest before that game came out, which we think is really cool. But it, you know, we definitely can't take credit for everything our players have figured out about our physics engine. And I was also curious, you know, the the second anniversary of the game is a week away, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your strategy is as far as tweaking things. Have you done any research on when or if people get tired of the core gameplay? Is there a, a certain interval at which you need to freshen things up and give people a different spin on it? Is there some balance that you have to strike between not tampering with that core yeah. gameplay, which has proven very popular and which seems to be serving the game very well, but also continuing to provide enough new stuff to keep people coming back, even if you even need to, to give them that extra incentive. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, at first I can say that um, we try really hard not to tamper with the core game. Uh, we will in the case of a bug or an exploit, but part of it is our players have so many accrued hours now playing the game in its specific configuration that it's really daunting to say, oh, now the bounces are going to work differently. And, you know, your 5,000 hours of training have been invalidated. Mm -hmm. um, so we try really hard not to touch the base game unless we absolutely have to. And that also feeds into we absolutely try to have new content for people to check out every couple months. But we don't necessarily look at it as mitigating getting bored of the core game. You know, we, we treat our game like a sport, right? You don't get sick of basketball. Right. You know, if you're if you're a basketball fan, you play basketball your whole life. You don't only play it because the NBA released a new patch. So we look at it in that sense. But, you know, that's what our alternate game modes are for is just a little bit of variety before you go back to our staple soccer mode. So that's what the drop shot mode was that we released early this year. That's what Rumble was last year, which people seem to really mm -hmm. dig, uh, where you could play with power-ups, kind of like a Mario Kart game. Um, but those are all to us just distractions from the main event. One of the issues that is kind of like inescapable whenever there's an online community or in video games and it's a competitive video game is, is toxicities. How do you guys yeah. deal with toxicity, whether it's within the game, within the forums? Uh, so in the game, we have a reporting function that we're always working on improving. We have some pretty cool stuff in the pipe for that. Uh, we take it really seriously, uh, especially with our game being, you know, a slightly different target audience than maybe Counter-Strike. So we're getting into more and more sort of automated ways to detect and act against people doing or primarily saying things that are, you know, offensive or hurtful. But the other big thing we do is we encourage people to use the built-in chat system, the quick chat system, which has sort of taken on a life yeah. of its own. And uh, we actually often encourage people if they're frustrated with the online players, which, you know, we can only do so much about at the end of the day. Uh, you can actually just turn off player chat and only use quick chat 
And some people have really seen an uptick in their enjoyment once they just switch to saying positive things with the built-in system and not being exposed to everybody having a bad day on Steam yeah. today. But we're really happy with that, how that system turned out. It was kind of a late addition when we were going to console when we, we, we had always played on PC and you could just quickly type something to each other like, oh, I'm going to stay back and play goalie. And as soon as we got onto PlayStation, we realized like, you know, I really don't want my teammate pausing what he's doing to type on the on-screen keyboard that he's doing something or to yell at me. Uh, so we kind of threw in that quick chat system at the last minute, which allows you to just say, you know, nice shot or incoming really quickly. And that, you know, it was way more successful than we ever could have thought. It's like a, it seems to be a meme now on Reddit. I say my bad, like a lot. Yeah, it's the best <laughs> one. That's my favorite. <laughs> uh, when can we expect Rocket League 2 or I guess 3? I mean, is this game sort of sequel proof in terms of a conceivable follow up? I don't think it's sequel proof, but we're looking at it right now. Like uh, we look at Valve a lot as a really cool model to follow. And we don't view Rocket League right now as a yearly sequel kind of game. We view it as an ongoing service. And it doesn't make sense for you to have to come back and buy Rocket League 2017 and reacquire all of the cars and items you've got, right? Like we're very geared towards you're accumulating a really cool garage full of cars and hats and accessories over time and we're just building and building and building on the same game uh not restarting it every every year so right now we're not looking at a rocket league 2 or anything like that just want to keep making the game better and better we've seen a lot of partnerships in esports with traditional sports teams it's not always totally clear why or what the point of those <laughs> partnerships is but it's uh, something that we've seen more and more and not only with sports games but also games completely unrelated to sports are you aware of anything like that in the works for rocket league is it something that would interest you personally I'm not personally aware of anything. I think it's intriguing, right, to see if these a lot in a lot of cases they seem like single sport brands trying to cross over into a new type of competition. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting at least personally to see like can that work, right? Like do you want to root for Manchester United in Counter-Strike as well as in soccer or is that, you know, is people's attachment to that team tied entirely to the you know, to me, it seems like it's more about the soccer club that they maintain and not them as a cross sport brand. Mm -hmm. But there are some pretty cool orgs that we have worked with, like uh, NRG. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Yep. They're owned, mm -hmm. partially owned by Shaq. Yep. Uh, they're one of the best teams in Rocket League, and they've been really great to work with. And that kind of stuff's interesting to us, right? It's like, I know Overwatch is dealing with some of this as well, is how do you build up franchises for people to attach to? that have analogs in real sports. And I think that's the big challenge for all of esports right now is what does that landscape look like in five or 10 years? Is it, do these new orgs come in and solidify and become the brands of esports or is it local and regional based? You know, Overwatch is trying a thing where you buy a franchise in a city. Yep. So that'll be really interesting to see how that pans it's out. Only 20 million. <laughs> I don't know if that's a, a real report, number. Wait, I reported twenty billion. <laughs> I heard that number too, which is pretty crazy. But, uh, you know, who knows? good. Uh, we're really watching closely to see how they do because I think that's going to set a lot of standards no, for yeah. the future of esports. Mm -hmm. And so you guys have the the second anniversary update coming next Wednesday. I know there is a Rick and Morty tie-in. Is there yeah. anything else from a, a gameplay perspective that people should be looking for? Uh, let's see. We're dropping a bunch of new types of stuff for your car, so you can uh, you can change your goal explosion now. So when you score, you can mm. have like a giant flaming skull come out of the goal. <laughs> oh, I just got really excited. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty neat. Uh, you can change like the trails off your tires when you're going really fast, and you can change how your engine sounds. So if you if you want your uh, little dinky car to sound like a muscle car, or vice versa, you can do that now too. Mm. We got a really cool esports stadium coming in that we built around the RLCS. So it's got this mega trophy in the background and it's really fabulous looking. So we're excited about that. We've got a partnership with a company called Monster Cat that does, they're basically a label for uh, electronic music. And they've brought in a bunch of new tracks into the game uh, that you can sort of opt into and listen to on top of our sort of existing catalog of music built for the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so we we really like their stuff and we're excited about that. And I guess the last thing is just we're doing a new competitive season, which always triggers a lot of uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth <laughs> on Reddit and elsewhere on social media. But it's also cool to have a, a new thing to go accomplish. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, we're glad that we could have this conversation. We love Rocket League. And (laughs) if you want to follow Corey on Twitter, he's at Mr. Corey Davis. You should know how to find Rocket League by now. (laughs) It's everywhere and you should uh, hunt it down if you haven't yet. And thanks also to Rob Harvilla. You can find him on Twitter too at Harvilla (laughs) and also writing at The Ringer. So Thanks to to both of you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's take a quick break, dear, from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Kate Nibbs on Crash Bandicoot. Are you ready to save money and play more games? Then let me introduce you to our sponsor, Gamefly. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. Gamefly is the leading video game rental service with over 9,000 titles to choose from. Let's you try your favorite games and movies before you buy. You can keep the games as long as you want, and you'll never have to worry about late fees. Plus, you can cancel any time. Gamefly now offers movie rentals, too. So go to Gamefly.com slash AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time, and you can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com slash AO. So go sign up and start playing all of your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. All right, so today is Crash Bandicoot's big comeback, the Crash Bandicoot N period sane trilogy is coming out for PlayStation 4 today. It is the original trilogy remastered and improved in certain ways, and Jason and I wanted to talk about this, but we know next to nothing about (laughs) Crash Bandicoot. For some reason, it's a complete blind spot for us, but fortunately, the Ringer staff is deep and has varied interests, and we have a colleague who has been sending us the occasional pointed tweet over the last several months advocating for a Crash Bandicoot podcast, and there will never be a better time than now. That's so right. we are joined now by Crash Bandicoot <laughs> fan, Kate Nibbs. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. I never Hi. thought this day would come. Months in the making. <laughs> I mean, a lifetime in the making for me. I um, I know next to nothing about most video games, but Crash Bandicoot, like in the same way that you always love the music you discovered as a teen the most, mm-hmm. Crash Bandicoot is is my favorite childhood game. I'm thrilled that uh, this is really happening. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know how Jason and I completely missed it because Jason, yeah. you had a PlayStation, right? I I had a 64 and I didn't get a PlayStation until later, so I think that's why I missed it. I don't know what your excuse is, but my my excuse is by that time, uh, you know, the first person shooter was just kind of starting, and 3D mm. game, 3D action games were just kind of starting, and it felt like you know what, platform 3D platforming is. I'm just I'm ready for. I'm ready to move on from 3D so, platforming. The, so my, my, my only experience with Crash Bandicoot is from playing it as Nathan Drake in Uncharted. Yes, Four. same. <laughs> and I was terrible at it. So yeah. so you just had bloodlust and Crash was not doing it for you. Yeah, that's exactly. The, I think in the 90s. That's fair. <laughs> so, Kate, what is your Crash Bandicoot experience? How did you discover it? Which ones did you play? So I was not allowed to play video games growing up. So I think like the reason I wasn't into first person shooters, that was like too advanced for me. So <laughs> when I got my first console, it was PlayStation and my parents gave us um, like an NBA game and then Crash Bandicoot. And my brothers loved the NBA game. And so Crash Bandicoot just sort of became my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the original, I had Crash Bandicoot 2, Crash Bandicoot Warped, and they also had a racing game that I'm pretty sure is a flagrant knockoff of um, <laughs> like <laughs> Mario yes. Kart or whatever. Yeah. But yes. I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I like grew up only playing video games over at my cousin's house. And I was only ever really into the platformers because that seemed within my skill set. And I think I liked Crash Bandicoot so much because it was pretty easy to, to figure out. Like he couldn't even do that many moves. He was basically just spinning around and getting the little boxes. And, um, I, I understood that it was like a fairly flagrant Sonic ripoff, but I didn't (laughs) care. (laughs) I thought he was like a cooler teen version of Sonic. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I feel like the more restrictive your household was from yes. a video game playing perspective, the more precious those few moments that you would get at a friend's house or a cousin's house or whatever were. And I was somewhat limited in my video game time, and I was always trying to find ways around those limitations. But I had a couple friends who just didn't have any video games or had really strict parents who didn't want them spending any time in front of screens and so when they would get to my house it was like their one chance yeah. to, to indulge <laughs> and it was like I felt bad I didn't even want to take turns or anything because it was just their only opportunity so it sounds like Crash just hit that sweet spot for you <laughs> what was it about Crash what was it about the uh, about Crash the action in Crash that that got you was it just like the ability was it really just like I can play this video game, but what was it like about sort the mechanics? Of, but of I game really think it was cool. Like at the time, the the graphics look cheesy now, but at the time, I was I was at least under the impression that they were cutting edge. Like it reminded me of Pixar movies. Mm-hmm. It was sort of it was definitely childish, but as I said, you know, he had a little bit of an attitude, so I felt okay about it. <laughs> and um, it was also there was a lot of tiki themed stuff going on. Yeah. In, mm-hmm. in, that aesthetic really appealed to me <laughs> so I was just it kind of felt like I, I was on vacation when I was playing the game both from my own life and and into this fun colorful world of of bandicoots and also the the game has like a very interesting message against genetic engineering <laughs> Really? <laughs> Which wow. Yeah, it's like Crash Crash, I think he escapes from a lab. I'm not sure his exact origins, but he's definitely um always facing off against like a mad scientist who wants to experiment on him and his brethren. Um oh, so <laughs> it actually is like a fairly disturbing narrative. <laughs> but I don't know. I just yeah, I I don't think the game, like from an objective perspective, was doing anything particularly original. Like I played at least Mario and Sonic and it seemed part of the appeal was the familiarity. But Mm. I just liked I I liked the little twist it put on it. And I I just at the time I thought it looked really awesome. Have you guys had a chance to play the new version? No, we have not. And those who have seem to be writing positive reviews. It's it's getting good notices and people seem to say that it's the old games and they're dated in certain respects, but they've been given a an overhaul from a graphical and technical perspective and that they're still fun. So Maybe this is the time for us to get into Crash Bandicoot for the first time. I don't I'm, know. I'm here for yeah. I'm here for that. I'm yeah. ready. Oh, you, I, I'm looking for like a fellowship of Crash Bandicooties in the Ringer office. So. <laughs> Do you have any sense of how well it would have aged? Because it's hard to say because your memories of playing it are from whatever age you were then. And it can be tough if you haven't played a video game in a long time. Sometimes you return to it and it is not nearly what you remember or it's been passed by by many other games and it doesn't seem so special anymore. But I would assume that your basic platformer gameplay holds up pretty well, no matter what system or or character it is. Yeah, I think I'm I'm confident I'm going to like the new game. The only thing that I I'm a little bit hesitant about how it held up is that I remember his um his sister was Coco who was a lady bandicoot. Mm. There was a damsel in the distress figure named Tana and I think that that would be a little outdated now. Mm. And also the other thing that I don't know if it'll hold up, there was a sort of protective shield that you could unlock called Aku Aku and mm. um it was a witch doctor and it seemed like kind of culturally insensitive. Right. Um <laughs> I don't like it just sort of I remember being a teen and being like, this is a little weird. Like, why is there a witch doctor in this game? Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure about that. But in general, I'm like fairly confident that it will still be fun to play. And I just don't think that platformers like will ever go away because for video game like novices like me they're so accessible and for everyone they're very fun i think yeah nintendo is still making brand new damsel in distress games so (laughs) for that (laughs) for better or worse that has not gone out of style in the the platformer space one thing i that struck me when i was playing 
again, Crash Bandicoot within the reality of Uncharted 4 as Nate Drake in his living room playing Crash Bandicoot, his wife, <laughs> is I noticed that there are certain thematic uh, similarities that have carried over into the Uncharted series, running through the jungle, for instance, and the way that the camera angle kind of creates this feeling of action is very similar to some of the things that Uncharted does. And then to hear you talk about the storyline, it seems like Naughty Dog was doing like the gritty stuff, like even back in... Crash Bandicoot. Ben, what did you, what were your impressions of Crash Bandicoot playing Crash Bandicoot as Nate Drake playing Crash Bandicoot? <laughs> I was too bad at it to get far <laughs> enough into it to, to realize the similarities, I think. But, but yeah, could, could you describe what Crash is like as a yeah. character? Because, I mean, distinctive look, but I have zero sense of what he is like. Is there even voice? Is it all text or you know, Nintendo style emoting or is it a fully fleshed out story? Um, it's not fully fleshed out, but he definitely has a personality and he burps. He does a thumbs up gesture a lot. Um, mm -hmm. And he also yells, whoa, when he does something wrong. Um, <laughs> like I've compared him to Poochie from the Simpsons. Um, <laughs> 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 he wears very on-trend denim capris, um, which I didn't appreciate at the time, but that definitely works in 2017. But yeah, he's just sort of like a petulant teenage marsupial who he seems like a little bit like he was forced to be a hero. He's not naturally, if mm. he had his way, he would just be relaxing somewhere on the beach. But he also was very athletic. Like they made, they basically made him be jacked. Like he was built. <laughs> um, and, so, and, the, and the angle at which they, that you play, I, I, cause I've never played um, Uncharted, but you definitely feel like you are the character because of the angle. And so it, it kind of feels like you're being athletic, even though you're just sitting there. And when I was researching like the history of Crash Bandicoot, because I like wrote a plea last year for them to bring it back. I <laughs> cannot believe that they obliged. <laughs> One of the funniest things that I found out was that the co-creator of the game, this guy named Andy Gavin, admitted in an interview that the concept when they were just in early stages of working on it, they nicknamed it Sonic's Ass because <laughs> they like knew what they were doing. They were like, we're going to make a Sonic game where you feel like you're more in the action. So like, you, you're basically looking at his butt for most of the gameplay. <laughs> <laughs> and are your memories clear enough to recall how the game changed or what the innovations were from one to the next? Like if people are playing all three in this new package at once, what would be the big differences that, that they notice going from, from one to the next? I know that there was a, the very first Crash Bandicoot, like what Crash could do was really limited. And then mm -hmm. his moves got increasingly more like sophisticated as it went on. I remember really liking Warped the best mm -hmm. because it had more interesting bosses. But yeah, I think it just sort of got more expansive and they let him do more each time. But I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. exactly what, what changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wish that my original PlayStation like CD discs weren't so scratched up because we have like an original PlayStation at my parents' house somewhere. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> can How much contrast? What would you say your average Crash Bandicoot session the length would be oh it was like several hours <laughs> two hours longer than two yeah. hours yeah uh, yeah like between like one and three hours it was basically how i spent a lot of afternoons in eighth grade like before i had a lot of homework in high school my 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 gaming days fell off dramatically in high school just because i had to do mm -hmm. homework instead of playing crash Bandicoot. Oh, come on <laughs> <laughs> there are ways around that yeah i mean it's surprising that this property laid yeah. fallow for so long and there was no crash for such a long period and i wouldn't be shocked if if this game is received well as it seems like it has been and if it sells well and shows that there is still an appetite for this character and this franchise then we will be seeing more crash bandicoot in the future which i I assume you would be pleased about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm thrilled. 
I would like Coco Bandicoot to get her own game, maybe. Apparently, she's whoa, a playable whoa. character now in yeah. this remaster. You can Huge. play as Coco in all of them. Yeah, that's great. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know why the time seems so ripe now, but I feel like it's just the an opportune moment in our in our cultural uh, milieu to bring back uh, the rudest, uh, crudest. <laughs> <laughs> platform character um i don't know oh, i also like it would be cool if they made a sort of foil for crash like a waluigi wa mario situation oh wow they don't I, they don't really have that yeah that's my recommendation <laughs> if anyone from from the the bandicoot team is listening <laughs> Yeah, the the crash supporting cast or expanded universe, I don't think really broke through into no. the mainstream the way that Sonic's did or or Nintendo games did. Like I I couldn't identify a supporting Crash Bandicoot character. I don't think by sight. Yeah, no, they they weren't really that memorable. Like the the big boss was the insane scientist who was Doctor Neo Cortex, and I yeah. I remembered mm-hmm. him, but that's about it. They could uh, definitely expand on that in the future. I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Now, how did you how did you interact with those the, these other characters? Was it mainly just cutscenes? Did they, you actually have to fight them in certain boss battles? You did have to fight them in certain boss battles, but that was it. And then mm-hmm. yeah, and then there'd be little like intro things. But in in the levels, it was usually just like Crash on his own. Mm-hmm. And did it remain a side scroller throughout the games? Like you're just running from from one side of the screen to the next and avoiding obstacles, or did it become more of a fully 3D adventure where you are controlling from behind the character and exploring more of a an open world? It was a side scroller, at least for the first three. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they did after that, but yeah, it was. I, I mean, again, I definitely realized that it wasn't really breaking any new boundaries of creativity with with the gameplay but <laughs> <laughs> right so the big question i guess is whether this is going to get you back into video games because that was what happened last year final fantasy 15 came out and justin charity who hadn't played video games for <laughs> 10 years or so right. we got him hooked again he he came on the podcast he played final fantasy and now he he's plays f- video games more than yeah, we do he's a f- he is now a full-blown <laughs> degenerate justin charity justin charity is the guy who will get a game and then dm me like later that night and be like well i beat that here's the thing about this game and i'm like what the how what (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's incredible because (laughs) as long as i've known charity because i've known him for about a year i just always assumed he was like a lifelong gamer but i guess not i think this might be my justin charity moment though like i'm going to order a playstation 4 yeah and I don't know if I'll ever get good at the games that most people play, <laughs> um, but this this might be my area of expertise. I don't know. If if you guys had to recommend, if Crash is my gateway drug into gaming, like wow. what should I play after that? Hmm. Maybe Ratchet and Clank. Games yeah, Ratchet and Clank is great. Be a good choice. Those are uh, sort of similar animal mascot character, colorful, bright world, and cartoony characters and fun, fluid controls. So that'd probably be my first pick. Okay, I, I agree with that. I agree with that totally. And also, I know, as you said, Justin is trying to get you a Switch. I would imagine for platformers and side-scrollers, that's going to be your... That would be the console that, that would most okay. um, satisfy you. Mm-hmm. Are any of those games the sorts that you wear a headset and talk to other people? <laughs> no. The Switch? Oh, yeah, no. No. Headset's I optional. Don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ready for that yet. I just know that my brothers are like really invested in that type of game. So whenever I go home, I can like hear them yelling. And I think I was briefly concerned that one of them was just going through like emotional turmoil. But it turned out he was just in a fight with a stranger from, from the internet. <laughs> so it's your brother. I was wondering who that one guy yelling on online video games was. Turns out oh, yeah. it's Kate Nibs' brother. It's always them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I really hope you do get back into it and start acquiring consoles. I just want to have every member of our staff on the yes. podcast and then just seed the idea that they should get back into video games and gradually the ringer will just become a video game site. That's right. So we're making progress slowly but surely. So awesome. you can 
Find Kate on Twitter at Kate Nibs. You can find her at The Ringer, writing about tech and all sorts of other topics, including hopefully soon video games and Crash Bandicoot. And we're glad that uh, we could finally make this happen and that Naughty Dog could make this happen for us and Sony. And they all came together to make this dream of yours come true. So thank you very much for coming on. And we hope you enjoy your, your trip back into Crash Bandicoot nostalgia. You guys, it has been a pleasure. We finally did it. (laughs) (laughs) You got it. When you play it, uh, when you play Insane, we got to have you back on. Okay. Definitely. I'm like going to order. I'm going to order the PlayStation today. So (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Thanks, Kate. Bye. All right. So that will do it for today. We will be back next week. You can again join our Facebook group to discuss games even when we are not doing that on the podcast. You just have to go to facebook.com slash groups slash achievement oriented. You can find us on Twitter at achievement pod to send us questions there. We'll get to them on a future show. Enjoy your long weekends and your long weekend gaming. And we will talk to you all next week. See you, Jason. See ya.